Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is Good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. Also, you can go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information. We have been overwhelmed with your support and appreciate your your reviews and comments on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information on our sponsor, which is CFS Financial. We're a full-service financial consulting firm for corporations, for companies of all types, for-profit and non-profit. We have developed quite a reputation in the non-profit space, working on matters like debt negotiation, debt reconciliation, funding new projects, with all sorts of loan programs, government loan programs, tax-exempt, bond financing, conventional and non-conventional. That's CFS Financial, and you can find more information at johnwarrenmedia.com. Today is our third episode on the U.S. Constitution, and today we start with the Sixth Amendment. We're going to move rather quickly today through all of the amendments to the Constitution from the 6th through the 27th, and some of them we won't spend a lot of time talking about and others we will land in. Podcast consultants would tell us that you respond best to stories and stories that have heroes and prove a point and teach us lessons. And I just wanted to do this three-part series on the U.S. Constitution because sometimes we forget what the document says, what this beautiful document is all about. And reinforcing this, in in my mind, is the fact that our federal government, and I recognize that I sound like a conspiracy theorist and I sound like I'm alt-right and I'm not, but our federal government has taken on a role that our founders did did not anticipate. And some of the amendments we're going to look at today are all about that, uh, the defining the role of the federal government and state government. In fact, you'll hear me say on many occasions as we talk about our government that our founders anticipated that state government would be much larger than state governments would be much larger than the federal government, and that's not the case. And some of the amendments we're going to talk about today speak to that issue. So we start with the Sixth Amendment. And this is exciting to me because this amendment grants a right to a speedy public trial by jury. Now, I often tell my students, if you've ever been to the DMV, you can see the jury pool among the people waiting for service at the DMV. If you've ever served on a jury, you know that we come from, in the state of Florida at least, the motor vehicle group, the group of licensed drivers, that is where the jury pool is drawn from. And we get people from all walks of life, 
serving on a jury and it's it's a wonderful thing there's a process that we go through which is beyond our scope today but it's quite a process and it protects us and we get we get the right to a speedy trial so that we can't be incarcerated or otherwise have this hanging over our heads although there are some courts particularly juvenile courts in this country in this state in my area that have six-month delays for trials from the moment of arrest until the trial occurs. That's not what our framers anticipated in the Sixth Amendment. So we have the right to a speedy and public trial, and that's Amendment 6. Amendment 7, similarly, involves civil cases involving property worth more than $20. It promises the right to a jury trial for certain cases. The Eighth Amendment prevents the government from imposing cruel and unusual punishment on criminal defendants. Here's what it says. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. So again, this document doesn't grant us our rights It protects us. It protects those rights, those God-given rights. Excessive bail can't be required. Now, the meaning of the words is important, and what is meant by excessive varies from case to case. Nonetheless, that is the Eighth Amendment, and it provides us with some protection. The Ninth Amendment establishes now this is this is beautiful and this is one you know you don't hear people claiming that they're fond of the ninth amendment i love my ninth amendment rights i hope you do after listening to this podcast episode listen to this the enumeration in the constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people If you remember, two episodes ago, we talked about Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution, and we talked about Section 8 of that article, the enumerated powers of Congress. And then we talked about Article 2, the presidency, the executive branch of the government, and Article 3, the judiciary. And then then we talked about the rest of the articles and their importance, and we talked about all kinds of interesting concepts like the writ of habeas corpus and and the other things that are addressed. Well, this amendment says the enumeration of the, in the constitution of certain rights and those rights are, some of those rights are enumerated in those sections of the constitution, particularly section eight of article one, limiting the powers of Congress. Well, that enumeration shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Then then let's fast forward real quickly to the 10th Amendment. Here's what it says. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Now, attorneys who are listening are perhaps going to cringe because I'm not going to do a some sort of uh, legal uh, researched legal discourse on the ninth and 10th amendments. But what they say conceptually, what we can hang our hats on is the fact that even though the U S constitution bill of rights names certain rights, 
That doesn't mean that people don't have other rights not specifically included in the Constitution. Now, that's that's the Ninth Amendment. And, and listen to this summary of the Tenth. The Tenth Amendment leaves any powers not specifically assigned to the federal government to each state or to the people. This amendment protects against the possibility of the national government assuming powers that have not already been assigned to it and is greatly important to keep the federal government limited as the U.S. Constitution framers intended. Now, does the federal government behave this way, even today? Now, I record these episodes weeks in advance, four or five weeks, six weeks, usually. And by the time you hear this, this environment that we're in, we will have been in for quite some time. And that is, we're in an environment, an inflationary environment. And when I say that, and we'll talk about economics periodically on Relentless Truth, but when I talk about inflation, I'm actually talking about the devaluation of the currency, the inflation of the money supply, if you will. And what that means to us is we experience rising prices. We are experiencing gas prices that are incredible. And I know those aren't measured in the consumer price index. And I know that there are basket of goods that are measured in that index. I'm not talking about that index. I'm talking about what it feels like to live in America. The cost of eggs has doubled. The cost of other items, if you go to Publix, where we shop in Florida, where shopping is a pleasure, shopping was a pleasure, you're going to find that you're total at the end of your shopping. If you get the same cart full of groceries every week or two weeks, you're going to find that costs have gone up substantially. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say at least 50% from a year ago or two years ago. Well, this is due to something that's quite interesting to me. You know, we've had this COVID-19 period and it caught our nation off guard during President Trump's last year in office to 2020 was that year. And if you remember March of that year, when you began to hear about a virus, I remember stupidly saying to my class, my economics class, imagine this, shocking they let me teach that class after I said this. I said, can you believe this? The stock market is blaming a virus from China on this precipitous decline. And it was for a certain day or two days of a week. And I do a simulation, a stock purchasing simulation in class. And I showed up and bravely said, can you believe they're always looking for something to blame here, this silly little virus. And then here we are. You know, we pumped $1.3 trillion earlier this year, 2021, into the economy to stimulate the economy. During the Trump administration, we had this program called PPP, Payroll Protection Program, I believe is its name, where we dumped billions of dollars into the economy. And I know companies, and I I understand that there are tangential benefits and there are indirect benefits that probably did help some people. And, and, And we also had a stimulus package that paid 
every taxpayer some some money if your income was below a, a certain threshold. And and I, I I get the value in 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 all of that. But a lot of people went out and bought cars and appliances and things and and a lot of companies just stockpiled the cash. Didn't need it to make payroll, but received the cash anyway. And interestingly, those were loans that ended up being converted to grants if the company complied with certain restrictions. Uh, it was two and a half times your monthly payroll and you had to use, you couldn't lay off a certain number of people. And did it benefit some people? And, and did companies keep some people on the payroll they otherwise might not have been able to? Sure, there were some benefits. I'm not arguing against all government intervention. I'm arguing that federal government is supposed to remain small. And according to the 10th Amendment, the power is not specifically assigned to the federal government. And you can't make the general welfare argument that a lot of people make for just everything you want to do that involves generally helping people. That that lane is much more narrow than that. And so the federal government has, in essence, artificially stimulated the economy. Now, we're going to talk later about the economy in, in a subsequent episode, and we're going to spend a lot of talk, time talking about uh, demand, the invisible hand of the market. Demand is important. The government has weighed in on the economy many times, and I, I, I know I mention this often, but with good intentions, sometimes, sometimes political intentions, frankly, and we all know that, don't we? But good intentions from time to time from the Congress, they, they're nice people. They want to help us, maybe. And so they pump money into the economy to protect the economy. Consumer exercises our, our, we exercise our rights and express demand. The Fed, in the meantime, has a, a stimulus, their own stimulus program. The, call it quantitative easing or whatever new buzzword they use for printing money. So they, too, are doing things that are stimulative to the economy, at least in their minds. And what you end up with is rising prices. That's what inflation looks like. It's rising prices. And that's what we're experiencing right now. Your disposable income is lower today because of federal government overreach. Now, what tools does the federal government have? What tool or tools do they have to combat runaway inflation? If you had the pleasure of being alive during the Jimmy Carter administration, during the Carter administration back in the 70s, you know they don't have many tools. And one of them, the one they, they exercise readily, usually, is to raise interest rates. And the interest rate they raise, the only one the Fed really controls, is the discount rate, the rate that it charges banks for overnight funds. That rate is a quarter of a percent. It's 0.25% for everybody today. And it's, it's lower than that for some larger banks in certain situations. So the money's almost free. Well, the Fed is going to have to raise interest rates to combat, to slow down the economy, the demand in the economy. And if you've bought a home, if you've had to relocate or chosen to relocate and, or, or you've made a major purchase that, that required credit or a large sum, a, a, a capital good 
then you know that demand is just overheated. This economy is exuberant. It is it is on fire in most markets. Now, I'm not uh, up to speed on every little market throughout the country and certainly not other markets throughout the world, but I can tell you that in the in the most US markets, the housing market in particular and the capital goods markets are on fire. And I've seen the cargo ships out in the out in the ocean at at the harbors and heard about the delays and there's a trucker shortage and we've got all kinds of all kinds of moving parts here and I get it it's it's a complex nuanced situation. But this demand that is getting expressed by consumers buying things and these price increases that are really close to out of control can only be managed in terms of the federal government intervening by the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. And for whatever reason, probably political reasons are involved and they would they'll resent that if they hear this. But yes, they are human, too. They are refusing to even announce that they might be raising interest rates into the future. Now, you're going to find someplace where Jay Powell, Jerome Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, said that he might raise interest rates in the future. And yes, he did. But but he was looking down the road a year or two when he said that. They're going to have to raise rates and they're going to have to raise them soon. And when they do, then we're going to see the stock market react rather negatively and the bond market will then fill up with cash. It's already filling up with cash in anticipation of this. And that has ramifications for all of us. Primarily, the cost of money will go up and that'll slow down our corporate growth and it'll reduce employment and we'll have job losses and foreclosures and some of the other characteristics of the 2008-9-10 period will come home to roost again. Anyway, this is a discussion about the Constitution, not about the economy, but federal overreach is a problem. Federal government does this all the time. Sometimes it impacts us directly and sometimes not so much. But in this case, it impacts us directly. There are those who are much more liberal than me who love the fact that the federal government cares about us and is involved in these matters. I say if they took their hands off of it, off of the economy, if they didn't quite attempt to stimulate the economy so much, that we'd go through cycles and we would self-correct. We've proven this over time. And when we get to the economy in a few episodes, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that again. Okay, the 11th Amendment, we don't care too much about. It limits, it talks about the judicial branch of the government. It says, among other things, the judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to any suit in law or equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States by citizens of another state. Those matters are settled in state court. The 12th Amendment is interesting because it changed the presidential election process. This is one of the longest amendments, and I'm not going to read it, but it's the one that changed our election process so that the president and vice president run together on a ticket. So the 12th Amendment changed the presidential election process that was laid out in Article 2, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution, and it fixed several problems that came up because of the development of political parties. It really was passed 
in response to an interesting tie vote in the 1800 election between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. And if you remember when we talked about Alexander Hamilton, we talked about the fact that he ended up, after many, many votes, breaking that tie, thereby disenfranchising Mr. Burr. And eventually that led to this honor fight, which led to Hamilton's death by gunshot in a duel. Okay, now we're at the good part. The 13th Amendment freed all slaves and indentured servants throughout these United States. The 13th Amendment was passed by Congress on January 31st, 1865. Section 1 of that amendment says, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Section 2 says Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So this was President Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. It was, it was the outcome of that proclamation a couple of years later. 13th Amendment was able to free all slaves and indentured servants throughout the country. Now, the 14th Amendment defines what it means to be a citizen of the United States, and it also protects civil rights. It, it really, Congress recognized, and this, this was passed by Congress on June 13th, 1866. So the 14th Amendment recognized that the 13th Amendment didn't quite go far enough It says, uh, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state where they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges of immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. And it then talks about representatives being apportioned throughout the several states. And no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector, a president, vice president, hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or executive or judicial officer of any state to support the constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may by two thirds vote of each house remove such disability. So the only crime really uh, that's referenced in the directly in the U S constitution is the crime of treason. Interestingly. So, you can win a, uh, a trivia game with that, that question. The 15th Amendment deals with the right to vote. It says the right of citizens of the United States vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. 15th Amendment is important, as are the 13th and 14th. Weighty, weighty, life-changing amendments, although they weren't always followed immediately following their ratification, but nonetheless weighty and important parts of our history. This, this amendment, the 15th, was passed by Congress on February 26th, 1869. It guarantees the right to vote and says that that right can't be 
denied based on race. The 16th Amendment addresses taxes. It says the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. It was passed in 1909, July 2nd, 1909, ratified four years later in 1913. It gives Congress the power to collect income tax, which changes a small part of Article 1, Section 9 of the U.S. Constitution. The 17th Amendment lays out how U.S. senators are elected and how they're elected now. The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state elected by the people thereof rather than the legislatures for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. And then it goes on. The senators for in each state shall have the qualifications. The electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislatures. This word electors can be confusing in the Constitution because in a couple of places we're talking about the electoral college electors and at other times they're just talking about registered voters referencing all of us as electors the 19th amendment gave women the right to vote now that is jolting to me as i look at our history this was approved because of a a case minor versus happerset a supreme court case in in 18 75 but this this particular amendment gave women the right to vote it was passed by congress in, on june 4th 1919 not until 1919 it was ratified on august 18th of 1920 susan b anthony argued that the 14th amendment privileges and immunities clause gave women the right to vote since they had been citizens all along here's what it actually says the 19th amendment the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex, meaning gender. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Today, women are, are hugely involved, significantly involved in politics and are running for office in increasing numbers. So it's hard for us to imagine a period where women did not vote. But prior to 19, August 18th, 1920, they did not vote. The 20th Amendment kind of cleans up some timing. And there's a whole long discussion, frankly, it'd be kind of boring, about why Congress, uh, congressional sessions were set up the way they were. They they really had a lot to do with travel by horse and, and weather initially. And it, it was anticipated that sessions of Congress would be very brief and recesses wouldn't be that common. And, you know, over the years, we've, we've kind of evolved into this, this system that starts, well, the 20th Amendment. Here, here, let me just tell you what it says. Uh, it says the terms of president and vice president shall end at noon on the 20th day of January. So, uh, That's the reason we have the inauguration and the oath of office administered on that day. And the terms of senators and representatives at noon on the third day of January of the years in which such terms would have ended if this article had not been ratified and the terms of their successors shall then begin. And then section two says the Congress shall assemble at least once in every year and such meetings shall begin at noon on the third day of January unless 
they shall by law appoint a different day. So the session of Congress started much earlier the previous year after the election. And we were just, we were all out of sorts with all of that. And so we're much more closely aligned. Congress takes office then on, on the third day of January. And the, and then, and then uh, after a presidential election, the, the president takes office on the 20th day at noon on the 20th day of January. And then, then we get into to succession here. It says, if at the time fixed for the beginning of the term of president, the president-elect shall have died, the vice president-elect shall become president. And if a president shall not have been chosen before the time fixed for the beginning of his term, or if the president-elect shall have failed to qualify, the then vice president-elect shall act as president until the president shall have qualified, and it goes on. And then there's another section on the death of Congress members and some other sort of cleanup issues. Then we have the, the 21st Amendment. I skipped prohibition earlier, but the 21st Amendment repeals uh, prohibition. It says the 18th Article of Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. If we go back and look at the 18th Amendment, it made the production, transport, and sale of alcohol illegal. And here's how they worded it. This is interesting. After one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importation thereof into or exportation thereof from the United States and all territory subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. I might have had an ancestor who ran moonshine during that that period. Kind of interesting. But along comes then the, the 21st Amendment, which repeals prohibition. It was ratified on December 5th, 1933. Lots of things were going on in this country then. We just had experienced the Roaring Twenties. And that's, that's a very interesting period, and I, I think it's worth studying. It's worth noting that the economy... It came to a screeching halt, I would argue, because of federal government intervention that is akin to what we're seeing today. All right, so then we have the 22nd Amendment. It limits presidential terms to two. It says no person shall be elected to the office of president more than twice. And it goes on to talk about if, you, if they serve a couple of years because of they inherited the office and so on. But... It was ratified on February 27th, 1951. The 23rd Amendment allows Washington, D.C. citizens the right to choose electors in presidential elections. The 24th, and it's shocking that this only occurred at this point in our history, the 24th Amendment abolished poll taxes, which had previously been required to vote in elections. Here's what it says. The right of citizens of the United States to vote in any primary or other election for president or vice president, for electors for president or vice president, or for senator or representative in Congress shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state by reason of failure to pay any poll tax or other tax. Shockingly, this amendment was ratified on January 25th, 23rd, I'm sorry, 1964. 
The 25th Amendment sets the order for succession of the president and lays out what to do in the case of presidential capacity. Now, you hear about this one a lot today, and I'm not going to, we're not going to critique President Biden's mental state. Well, we're not going to compete it. We're not going to talk about it much, but we're going to just talk about the, the change that this amendment required. It primarily focuses on succession of the presidency, but it does give guidelines, I would say, for the removal of the president from office. Look at this. Section one, in case of the removal of the president from office or his death or resignation, the vice president shall become president. Section two, whenever there's a vacancy in the office of vice president, the president shall nominate a vice president who shall take office upon confirmation by a vote of both houses of Congress. This is how Richard Nixon nominated and chose Gerald Ford to be vice president. And then Gerald Ford for about five minutes ended up being president after Nixon resigned. Section three, whenever the president transmits to the president pro tem of the Senate and the speaker of the house of representatives his written declaration that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. And until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary, such powers and duties shall be discharged by the vice president as acting president. Usually, if the president goes under anesthesia, this, this, this happens. Section four says, whenever the vice president majority of either the principal office of the executive department of such other bodies, Congress may by law provide transmit to the president pro tem of the Senate and speaker of the House of Representatives, a written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. The vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. You heard talk of this during the Trump administration. It was ugly talk that said he's lost his mind and the Congress should invoke the 25th Amendment. This, this amendment goes on to, to prescribe in detail succession and the way that this, this process would, would happen. But it was ratified on February 10th of 1967, and it sets the order of succession for the president and lays, lays out what to do in the case of presidential incapacity. That's its primary purpose. You know, we, we like order and control. We've had a few cases in our history where I remember Al Haig doing this, and it was particularly irritating when he said something to the press to the equivalent of I'm in charge when he wasn't. And so this, this amendment, if you read it, you'll see that it carefully prescribes this orderly transition, even in chaotic, potentially chaotic circumstances. So I mentioned Gerald Ford and Really, that's, um, I think Ronald Reagan actually handed his presidential powers to Vice President George H.W. Bush during a surgery that he had. It might have been after he was shot in an assassination attempt in D.C., if I recall correctly. So the 26th Amendment allows 18-year-old citizens to vote. Now, before this was ratified, you had to be 21 years old to vote in a federal election. Here's what it says. The right of citizens of the United States who are 18 years of age or older to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of age. I find it fascinating when I have discussions with students that, that we're all over the board on everything. And in some states, you've got to be 16 to drive, uh, others 17. I think there are some that require you to be 18. You get learner's permits at different stages and and you, you can drink alcohol at, tw- I think it's 21 in Florida, and it's younger in other states. And 
he served in the military at age 18, I believe. And, and kind of the question always comes up is, hey, when, when are you really an adult? And it just kind of depends. I mean, you can't, I don't think you can rent a car, if I remember correctly. I don't, I don't think you can even rent a car from a rental car company until you're 25 years old. And that probably has something to do with the, uh, the insurance database saying that young drivers cause more accidents or something. It's probably a defensive thing by the rental car companies. Nonetheless, if you're 18, you can vote per the 26th Amendment. Now, the 27th Amendment is, is really a, a very narrow, specific one. It, it, it made it so that pay raises or decreases for members of Congress, imagine that, pay decrease, can only take effect after the next election. So uh, here's what it says. No law varying the compensation for the services of the senators and representatives shall take effect until an election of representatives shall have intervened. So if they decide to pass a law that changes their salary, they might be benefiting a new class of representatives, except in the case of, of senators. So this law is kind of interesting. They, they tried it a couple of times, and then it was originally contemplated in, oh, I don't know, I think 1789. In fact, yeah, this is, this is the one that is, is the longest in terms of how, how long it was, it was out there from its original proposal. It wasn't ratified until May 7th of 1992. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is the U.S. Constitution. And as I, as I look at this crazy world that we're in, you know, we talked about the economy earlier and, oh my goodness, the uh, whole social justice thing and critical race theory and, and some of the Marxist tendencies, the, the, the government swelling, and even at the time of this recording, at least, they haven't approved the $3.5 trillion quote-unquote infrastructure bill, which really doesn't have a ton of infrastructure in it. When you look at all of these things, you see the federal government being involved in things that are outside of initiatives that are outside, well outside of the scope of this constitution. This document gets abused, to be frank. It gets ignored. There are those who who believe that Section 8 of Article 1 gives the Congress license to swell this document, to expand it, to stretch it. To, it's called the Elastic Clause. It says to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper. It's sometimes called the Necessary and Proper Clause. There's also the Commerce Clause that allows Congress to regulate commerce between the states and things like the Affordable Care Act and you know, government's intrusion into health care and other you know, government's intrusion into education. I'm talking federal government now that, that really should have been states' rights issues. I get that it sounds cold to say that, but, but really the thought I, I, I want to leave us with today is, is, is about the church. And, and it's interesting, the church and when I say the church, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about local churches. I'm talking about all denominations. I'm talking about the church, the, the church universal. The church has abdicated a lot of its responsibility, and the federal government has stepped in to meet human needs that really should be met by the church. I know pastors are going to say, oh, wait a minute, we have limited resources. That's just not how the culture works. 
And I get it. I'm not criticizing pastors who are pastoring churches today. I'm talking about a cultural shift where one Christians fell asleep at the wheel for years. And this deteriorating culture that we talked about in episode one, go back and listen to episode one. When I talk about Carrie Buck and the eugenics model that was implemented in the 1930s in uh, through the 1970s even, but primarily 1950s. So three decades in this country and look at how the church ignored some of those problems. The church didn't engage in government. I encourage my students at circle Christian school and I would encourage you and your, your children, your young people to get involved in government. Know this beautiful 4,400 word constitution and get involved, run for office, participate, petition your government, protest peacefully, constitutionally, biblically, call your senators. I do this in class and they never take the call, obviously, but sometimes they return the call or sometimes I get to talk to an aide of some kind who is helpful. Most of the time they send you to voicemail. But engage in the process, Christians. Make your voice known and be rational. Don't go alt-right. Don't go, don't, don't shred the Constitution for the benefit of our cause. Honor the Constitution. Read Romans 13 before you make the call. Be sure that we're complying with biblical mandates. But I would just urge you to, to participate in this process. Now, I've got some really interesting constitutional trivia that I'm going to close out with. There's a, there's a state, I bet you can't name it, that is misspelled in the U.S. Constitution. It is Pennsylvania. I told you last time, Constitution Day, just so you know, if you want to celebrate it with your friends, it's a wonderful day that takes a backseat to July 4th for no good reason, September 17th. That's the day in my humble opinion, we should celebrate as the founding of our nation. The first person to arrive at the Constitutional Convention was James Madison, who was also the scribe, remember? And he lived the longest. They made a deal that they wouldn't share the notes. Yep. 42 delegates attended most of the meetings. Bet you didn't know that one. You know how many signed it? The Constitution? 39. The compromise that saved the Constitutional Convention was the bicameral Congress, the two chambers made the large and small states happy. Large states were happy because of the House. They got, they got more representatives. And the small states felt represented by the Senate because everybody got two. You know who didn't attend? And here's the quote, because he, quote, smelt a rat. Patrick Henry. Of course, you knew that one. The oldest delegate to sign the Constitution was Ben Franklin. He cried and required assistance, physical assistance. He was also carried in by four prisoners in a chair to some of the sessions. You won't believe how long it took to actually agree on every word in the Constitution. It took 100 days. The President of the United States is to be called the President of the United States per the Constitution. There were two presidents who signed the Constitution, men who went on to become president, George Washington and James Madison. Congress convened the first time under the new constitution in 1783, 1783. The only delegate to attend every meeting 
was the scribe, James Madison. You know how many times the word democracy appears in the Constitution? Zero. None. Here's one. I like this one. How many people attended Ben Franklin's funeral? 20,000 people. The last state to ratify the Constitution was Rhode Island. They feared central government control. They were an agrarian society, believe it or not. So that's it. That's the U.S. Constitution. Our duty as Christians, read Romans 13, we're to obey the government. There's a quote by Peter in Acts that says, if we're faced with a choice between God or men, we choose God. Yes, we do. But we're to be obedient to this government. I would encourage you to participate in the process. I hope these episodes are meaningful. We're kind of going to go back to normal next week. We'll talk about parts of the economy. I have some exciting guests coming up. I can't thank you enough for your support of Relentless Truth. When this started, I had no idea that we would we would have a large following and so much support. Your positive comments, uh, even through my website, through uh, johnwarrenmedia.com, are so valued. Your your subscribing and, and reviewing and commenting and liking and sharing and social media goes a long, long way, and we appreciate it. So go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information. Thank you to our sponsor, CFS Financial. And I look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.